Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Zimbabwe's opposition leader Nelson Chamisa warns ruling ZANU-PF and United Nations celebrates its 73rd anniversary today. In economics news, South Africa's finance minister Ditum Boweni prepares to deliver his maiden medium-term budget speech. And in sports news, Lionel Mapwe to join Springbok training squad in Stellenbosch. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The Nigerian government has officially responded to the resurfacing of pro-Bihafra separatist leader Namdi Kanu. President Muhammadu Buhari's spokesperson Gabushehu in a series of tweets said the country under Buhari was strong enough to protect its territory against threats and that it was also in contact with friendly nations that respected its sovereignty. Kanu, who went missing for over a year since September 2008, 17 popped up in Israel over the weekend before issuing a broadcast that he was getting ready to return to Nigeria. He was declared missing by members of the indigenous people of Biafra after an army raid on his family home led to deaths and destruction of properties. Seven Ethiopian migrants have drowned after a boat carrying 13 people capsized off the coast of Tanzania while en route to South Africa. Tanga Regional Police say the boat went down near Tanzania's maritime border with Kenya. Twelve people on board were Ethiopians. Investigators are yet to identify those who had organized and financed the trip, saying the captain who is missing could have helped with the investigation. The deputy leader of an Islamic State-affiliated extremist group based in northern Somalia has been killed in the capital Mogadishu. That's according to Somali intelligence officials who spoke on condition of anonymity. They told the Associated Press that Mahat... Mahad Mullen's body was found near a Mogadishu beach last week, a few days after he was reportedly abducted while secretly visiting the city. The officials say his relatives have accused other deputies in the extremist group. Reports have emerged that the group's leader was ill, creating rivalry among possible successors. Head of the United Nations Entity for Women, Pumzlem Lambungluka, has expressed shock at the revelations being, revelations being made in the rape trial of Nigerian Pastor Timothy Omotos on the High Court in South Africa's Eastern Cape Province. The former South African Deputy President expressed solidarity with the alleged victim who displays bravery in court while being cross-examined by Omotos's lawyer. Mlambungluka has also questioned the support that some people have continued to give the accused. It is actually quite sad that women and young girls can have such a horrible experience in a place of worship, that it goes on for such a long time and the pastor, the other pastors and the people around him do not actually whistleblow. These girls now have got scars. I 
take my head off for them for their resilience, for the willingness to stand up and to tell the story. But I'm still quite disturbed that even with everything that has been revealed, this pastor still has got support. You really wonder what has gone wrong with our people. And finally, hurricane Willa has made landfall in Mexico, lashing the Pacific coast with powerful wind, heavy rain, and what forecasters warned was extremely dangerous storm surge. The powerful storm, which was a maximum Category 5 hurricane on Monday, weakened to Category 3 as it moved towards land. Forecasters have warned it still has the potential to unleash deadly flooding and landslides. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. Channel Africa. Zimbabwe's opposition leader Nelson Chamisa has warned the ruling ZANU-PF to stop taking citizens for granted. 40-year-old Chamisa made the remarks on Tuesday during a media briefing held at his party's offices in Harare. The opposition leader said the economy is nosediving due to lack of confidence among citizens and that it is high time all interested Zimbabweans find each other. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Exactly three months after the landmark July 30th pause, Zimbabwe continues to face economic challenges despite election promises to fix the country. Zimbabweans are now wondering what could have gone wrong as shortages of basic commodities have become a daily norm. In a bid to arrest the situation on Monday this week, four top Reserve Bank officials were suspended on allegations they were sabotaging the economy. Amid these worsening challenges, opposition leader Nelson Chamisa has warned the ruling ZANU-PF to stop taking citizens for granted. Chamisa made the remarks on Tuesday during a media briefing in the capital Harare. We have realized and witnessed the high and worsening levels of unemployment, deadening poverty and excruciating inequality. The country is experiencing a confidence crisis which is manifesting itself as a liquidity crisis. It is a confidence crisis, not a cash crisis. And this crisis is caused by structural deficiencies and distortions in the economy, typified by deindustrialization, a rising informality, in fact, from the National Labor Force Survey uh, of 2014. 94% of our economy is uh, informalized, up from 84% in 2011. We have dwindling capital inflows. We also have a galloping and runaway expenditure on the part of government, a government that has a huge appetite to spend money. The chief actor in that, being Idi Munangago himself, having been gallivanting and globetrotting, again perpetuating the old Mugabe style. 
Like some members of ZANU-PF, Chamisa warned the country's economy has suffered heavily due to corruption and well-connected saboteurs. As such, the gap between the rich and the poor has widened, Chamisa said. Our country is suffering from two critical classes that I'm observing. The first class is the looting class, which is the class of those who are property, who have access to privilege and who are entrusted with positions. Then we have the majority of us who are in the looking class, who are just the innocent bystanders. But the problem with the looking class is that it is suffering the pain because the looting is victimizing the looking class. We need to move from being the looking class and then move into the mode of being the active citizens and active class, providing leadership unto ourselves. And saying to ourselves, none but ourselves as Zimbabweans have the responsibility to liberate our country from the jaws of tyranny. Chamisa called on the government to stop pretending and accept the country is highly indebted. Zimbabwe's total debt stands at 16.9 billion US dollars, with domestic debt falling at 9.5 billion US dollars. As such, the country is failing to attract foreign direct investments. The immediate answer let us abolish the bonds, let us dollarize, we have a multi basket of currencies. Stop pretending that the bond and the U.S. dollar are one-on-one. That's self-delusion. You can't bury your head in the sand like an ostrich. Let's face the music. Number two, we need an audit of all the debt, in particular the nine billion debt, the treasury bills. Who benefited and where did the money go? So we need an inquiry by parliament so that we know the nature of the debt, even country by country debt, institution by institution, person by person, and account it to the country. I have seen the attempt to try and punish certain people in the reserve bank but there's a presiding officer the reserve bank has a presiding officer we want to see his rolling the presiding officer must suffer and the presiding officer to the presiding officer the president or the one who claims with the president must also account according to zanu pf activists the current challenges are short term as the country transforms itself on one hand chamisa has aged President Emerson Mnangagwa to swallow his pride and sit down to negotiate for the betterment of the nation. Meanwhile, MDC Alliance has vowed to celebrate its 19th anniversary on Saturday, even though the police shot down their first attempt. However, police powers were last week clipped by the Supreme Court. We are inviting all of you as we reflect on our journey commemorating the 19 years as a part of Excellence at Guanzola Stadium on Saturday the 27th. It's going to be a big day, a lot of activity. A lot of you were asking what are the key activities, what are you going to be doing. Come and see for yourself. It's going to be a momentum marker. It will change the course of direction of this nation. And we are ready to lead. We are ready for change. I know how suffering you are, but just know that it's not so long before our reins are back. The people's power is back. And real change is therefore better. In Arare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. The signing of the deal between the Democratic Republic of Congo and a consortium of companies for the Inga hydroelectric project is a big step towards solving the Central African country's power problems. This is according to Simon Gosling, Managing Director of the energy research company EnergyNet. He spoke to Channel Africa's Kumbele Mujelele. I think uh, the Inga project is the, uh, the pinnacle of Africa's energy opportunities. Um, but it's such a massive project. It comes with so many different varying problems and challenges um, that it does draw in a question as to whether the project will ever really reach fruition. The, um, the main 
areas outside of the uh, the immediate environment, environment and environmental um, challenges is how do you evacuate the electricity? You've got to get it. Um, you've got to get cross-border transmission projects. You've got to get wheeling contracts, which um, adds different costs. The initial cost infrastructure um, simply to evacuate the electricity is vast. So this has been a problem for Africa, for DRC, but for Africa because it's a project that would benefit all of Africa for many, many years. The question is whether it will ever see fruition. Now, I suppose, Simon, uh, the project of uh, this nature will surely have uh, adverse impacts on uh, the ecosystems, especially on uh, the lower Congo Basin in the country. What can we expect in terms of uh, the possible impact of uh, this uh, project? Well, I mean, it all boils down to how the country will manage the uh, the revenue. I mean, I think if you look at Ethiopia right now, their economic model is um, selling electricity to the region. They have a very exciting new energy plan coming up, and uh, they're going to be investing um, those monies into broader social economic development. Um, and it's really exciting what is happening in Ethiopia. I think what DRC as a country and its um, development partners have to get right, and almost as importantly have to communicate correctly is what is going to be the local benefit obviously beyond electricity access how's that money going to be invested what training is going to take place um, for the local people because at the end of the day Inga is a uh, a national asset Um, so the the advantages and benefits of this project coming off um, really needs to be explained and very clear um, what the benefits are to the uh, to the people of DRC. Now, earlier this year, you have organized uh, the Energy Africa Forum, which was held in uh, Mauritius. What are the opportunities that you have identified in the energy sector based on what came out of uh, this forum, Simon? Yeah, I think we approached this year quite differently. It was our 20th anniversary, and we wanted to really get into the fact that sector is moving very quickly but there are a group of people a group of companies that really have been in the sector right from the start and with electricity sector you need people who are committed to the sector who are long-term players we see a lot of companies coming in uh, not really understanding the challenges that that are faced in developing electricity um, on the continent Um, so what we did this year is is we recognized I think nearly 50 um, of the leading players in the sector who have been, who have been around and have committed their careers to developing um, electricity on the continent. They understand the nuances. They understand what it takes. They understand that it's not going to be a fast, easy win. And so we really wanted to reflect on on those careers and those successes. And I think the big takeaway from us from from this year is actually you know you've got a lot of new players and a lot of new entrants. But if projects like Inga are going to get done, you've got to draw on the experiences of these people who have been there and understand how it works. That's Simon Gosling, Managing Director of the energy research company EnergyNet, on the line from London speaking to Kumbele Munjelele. Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gonyus Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us today is South Africa's High Commissioner to New Zealand, Uyeswa Tulelo. 
Be sure to join Channel Africa at 10 o'clock Central African time on Thursday, the 23rd of this month, for this interesting episode of Womanity. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. With Ethiopia and Rwanda joining the slim global ranks of cabinets with 50% or more women representation, the total number globally now rises to just 10. The others, France, Sweden and Spain in Europe, Costa Rica, Colombia and Nicaragua in South America, and Canada. Very encouraged, very excited. Uh, It helps to boost our campaign uh, for Planet 5050 before 2030. Uh, We want to see this in cabinets because in cabinets are at least one institution where one person, the head of state, can actually make a decision. And in many cases, there's a very good pipeline to choose from. And Rwanda, Seychelles, and Ethiopia, and the uh, other countries uh, in the world that have done that are proving it. There's 10 countries now in the world that have 50-50 cabinets. Pumzile Mlambunguka says there is a higher representation of women in public sector leadership throughout Africa than in the private sector. But even so, the averages remain low. Certainly there's higher representation of women in the public sector, but not high enough even in Africa uh, to call it a, a big success story yet. Um, Africa, for instance, uh, the leadership in Parliament is on average 23%, uh, which is just above uh, or just about around the global um, uh, average. Uh, there's countries that are still below, so the fact that Africa is on the global average is not a big consolation. We definitely can do much better than that because AU already. Uh, took decisions that enforce 50-50 in all decision-making uh, institution within the AU itself. They have, uh, in some cases, as far as the commissioners are concerned, for instance, achieved a, a 50-50. They are struggling in, in, in some areas, but the decision is there. So we should be implementing it in Africa. Only five countries on the continent have enacted legislation to counter gender pay gap discrimination. South Africa, Angola, Kenya, Chad and Morocco. And despite this slow progress, Mlambunguka believes the demands on women who lead continues to be greater than their male counterparts. If these women don't succeed, they get uh, unfair and very harsh uh, scrutiny. Uh, I have to say, though, that a significant number of women who have occupied this very important position have really tried and worked very hard. That is why the limited progress that we have seen um, has looked like it is much more bigger then it, 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 it really is. There's an illusion of success. It has to do with the fact that uh, the few men that have been there have been uh, able to, to project very strongly. One woman trying to do the job of five men has seemed like uh, uh, she's five women. And uh, it shouldn't be like that. Uh, we need to be able to have both men and women of equal numbers without putting extraordinary pressure on women leaders urging greater political will and a greater public angst when women's leadership does not adequately reflect a country's or company's demographic. If you think of the countries that have been able to take uh, the step, the three in in Africa, those presidents uh, must have 
clearly thought about what statement they wanted to make. And when I look at the lineup of the women who are in this position, they are really strong and solid. And they are occupying significant position in those cabinets. It's defense, it's trade, it's health, it's foreign affairs. So they are not pushovers. And many of them come with accolades into the job. Aluta continua, or the struggle continues. What remains unclear is whether victory for women, particularly in Africa, is certain. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pees in New York. The Nigerian community in Nelson Mandela Bay in South Africa's Eastern Cape province has spoken out and shared their views on the controversial televangelist and Nigerian pastor, Timothy Omotoso. He and two co-accused are facing 97 sex-related charges in the Port Elizabeth High Court. The local Nigerian community has condemned Omotoso's alleged offences but has also called for a fair and unbiased trial. Community has also urged South Africans not to generalize by labeling all Nigerians as criminals. Veronica Faree reports. Various political parties, community members and ex-congregants protested in front of Omotoso's church during the Sunday morning gathering this weekend. They demanded that the church be closed. They also demanded that a large board depicting the name of the Jesus Dominion International Church must be removed. On our visit to the building in the CBD, there was no sign of the board. It is believed that congregants removed it. Meanwhile, Omatoso's name is on the lips of almost all Nigerian nationals where they gather in Parliament Street in Port Elizabeth. They hold different views, but all agree that Omatoso must be seen as an individual standing trial and not as a Nigerian. But if he's guilty as a Nigerian, I'm, I'm, I'm saddened. I'm not happy. That, that name Nigeria rings bell everywhere you go, all over the world. But for, for his, a man of his caliber to fall uh, for such victim, at least here there is democracy here, there is law here too. I mean, if he fall victim, let him face the music. Every case should be treated as an individual case, not as the case of a nation, because this is not against Nigeria and South Africa, but instead is against, against Omo Shosho and the accused. So I think he should be treated like as an individual. Others in, in South Africa are not doing the same thing. We have pastors, we have doctors, we have lawyers, we have others in every profession. So it's not right to say all Nigerians are doing this or all Nigerians have done that. I know this country as one of uh, the countries in the whole of uh, Africa as a, as a continent that uh, the whole world respects so much. My problem is that I don't want us as a nation to be embarrassed. A group of gender activists under the banner of the Vagina Campaign traveled all the way from the Cape Flats to show support for the alleged victims in the case. Dressed in T-shirts with explicit wording, spokesperson Lucinda Evans says they also want other activists to join them. They also want to see churches being regulated. These unregulated churches, which is currently operating under her nose, 
were perpetrating this particular church, this particular man, were perpetrating the most of horrid crimes to uh, women and children from our country. And so we are also here in Port Elizabeth to motivate the activists that now that this thing is out in the open, should we not have a conversation nationally in this country that these churches, all churches in our country operating, should be regulated. These ministers, pastors, imams, molina should be screened and vetted. And we want to advocate having child protection policies that protects women in the congregations. The trial of Omotoso and his two co-accused will resume on Thursday afternoon. Earlier, Omotoso instructed his lawyer, Peter Doberman, to ask Judge Mandela Makahula to recuse himself from the case on grounds that he is biased and that the accused are not receiving a fair trial. However, the judge dismissed the application. Doberman will bring an application for leave to appeal the judge's decision. I'm Veronica Furi in Port Elizabeth. The Verulam family court in South Africa's Guazul Natal province has linked 11 suspects to the terror organization ISIS. As a bail application continued, the state presented its arguments in opposing bail. The accused are linked to a spate of bomb scares at Woolworth stores and the Verulam mosque attack in May this year. They are facing charges of murder, attempted murder and offenses relating to explosive devices, arson, extortion and terrorism. Last week, charges were provisionally withdrawn against seven of the initial 19 accused. One accused, Gulam Hafaji, was granted bail of 100,000 rand last week. Prabashni Mudli reports. A chilling document by lead investigating officer Kwezi Benedict Chonko, which was read out in court by state advocate Adal Barnard, left many in the public gallery shocked. The affidavit presented by the state in opposing bail for the accused revealed that the majority of the accused were arrested at a residence in Fulham Road, Reservoir Hills, Durban. They hail from various African countries, which include South Africa, Burundi, Tanzania and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Accused number one, Farhad Humar, has been identified as the kingpin of the syndicate. He was seen leaving the Imam Hussein Mosque in Verulam, north of Durban, after the attack in May in a white Hyundai. A similar vehicle was found outside his home in Reservoir Hills. The affidavit provides information relating to business owners that Humar extorted money from to fund the group's terrorist activities. One of the three victims, who was kidnapped, was rescued by police from Humar's residence. All three extortion victims received calls and SMSs demanding that an amount of $100,000 be paid into an offshore account in Dubai. Police also found multiple incendiary devices similar to those found at the site of the bomb scares at Humar's home. A highly detailed manual was also found by police, which provided information on how to carry out terrorist acts, including bomb-making plans and recipes. His cell phone tower records placed his phone number in the vicinity of the Imam Hussein Mosque at the time of the murder. The affidavit also reveals that eight flags linking him to ISIS were found in his home. Homer's home was used as a training facility for the group to execute their terrorist attacks. Applicant 2 Ahmad Hafaji was part of a WhatsApp group called Jundullah, meaning Soldiers of God. The Sunni militant organization based in Iran fights for the equal rights of Sunnis in a predominantly Shia Iran. Hafaji is also linked to Ahmad Jackson Musa, a co-accused in the Del Vecchio matter which supports terror group ISIS. 
He was identified in the photo parade as one of the attackers of the Imam Hussein Mosque. Hafiji also acquired various materials which indicate his support for ISIS, namely an online magazine, Rumia. According to the affidavit, the incendiary devices, once analyzed by the police explosive unit, all bore the same manufacturer's signature. They were all fitted with a similar cell phone handset, which would remotely trigger them. The numbers retrieved from the handsets were linked to the accused. The affidavit further indicated a list of Shia institutions across the country. The bail application will continue in the Verulam Court on Thursday, the 24th of October. I'm Prabhashni Mudli for SABC News in Verulam. Are you looking for opportunities to network with Africa's business leaders? Do you want to engage with movers and shakers and participate in master classes presented by industry experts? Then, here's your personal invitation to attend the 4th Annual Africa Women Innovation and Entrepreneurship Forum and Exhibition taking place on the 8th and 9th of November in Cape Town, South Africa. If you want to register, then visit www.awieforum.org. Again, www.awieforum.org. If you cannot make the event, then don't worry. You can follow it through live broadcasts on Channel Africa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa on the headlines. Somali leaders call for an end to the ongoing fighting in Seoul in the north of the country, which has claimed more than 40 lives. The Nigerian government officially responds to the resurfacing of pro-Biafra separatist leader Namdi Kanu, and the U.S. State Department announces measures against some of the Saudi officials it has identified as being responsible for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Those are the stories making headlines. Alliance Partners expects South Africa's newly appointed finance minister, Tito Mboweni, to not only give substance to the economic stimulus package announced by President Sul Ramaphosa, but also to boost confidence in the economy. The country entered a technical recession, plunging an already stagnant economy into deeper trouble. The former governor of the Reserve Bank will have his work cut out as he navigates the tough economic challenges. Busichimombe filed this report. Finance Minister Tito Mboweni may only have been in office for two weeks, but he's no stranger to the economic challenges facing the country. Having been the head of the central bank for 10 years, 
He is well positioned to understand the intricacies of his new job and the expectations from the country as well. Kosato Secretariat member Matthew Parks. We would want to see Minister Mboweni flesh out government stimulus plan, flesh out the commitments government signed on to at the presidential job summit last month, say how we're going to get the economy moving, how we're going to create jobs, how we're going to crack down on corruption, recover the stolen money, crack down on wasteful expenditure, basically get the nation moving. We know it's the second week, but we don't have time for a honeymoon. We don't need to get moving very fast before the situation gets even worse. But Mboweni will have to strike a fine balance, assuring investors that the country is on top of its game, but also giving hope to hard-pressed ordinary South Africans. Spokesperson for the South African Communist Party, Alex Mashilo. The government is for all South Africans, the majority of whom is the working class. And over 9 million of these working class people are unemployed. They have been looking for work and many others within these 9 million who are unemployed are discouraged work seekers. We need a budget that appeals to them, that says to them the government is taking them seriously and is putting in place measures to respond to their conditions. How we relate to investors must be from the standpoint of our people. The ANC is optimistic. The statement will be a turning point in the country's fortunes. Chairperson of the ANC's Economic Subcommittee, Enoch Godongwana. Key things we need to achieve in in this budget at the moment is build confidence. One of the weakest things with the South African economy, people are not investing, there's worry about a couple of things. The first thing you need to do in, in, that, in, in that speech is to build confidence. The second thing you need to, to tell us, how is he reprioritizing the budget to achieve the, re, the recovery plan uh, announced by the president? Analysts believe Mboweni's experience will come in handy in these tough economic conditions. Political economist... Israel Mkize. Minister Tito is no stranger to junk status. When he came in uh, the office of um, Governor of the Reserve Bank, the country was in junk status and they had to work very hard with uh, an economic cluster team. Uh, And you'll be surprised that he was amongst the first guy to go and issue uh, uh, guarantees or or securities in the bond market in the US uh, after 1994. So he is quite conversant with uh, the depths of, of, of the economy as it were. The mini-budget will be the first major speech to be delivered by the newly appointed finance minister. That report by Busi Chimombe. To talk to us more about South Africa's new finance minister, Didumboweni's medium-term budget speech this afternoon, we are now joined on the line by economist with PwC South Africa, Maura Federson. Maura, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Should we expect any major announcements in this mini-budget? Yes, I think it is on the cards that we will see a number of announcements. One of the expectations is that we will see additional details as to what exactly government has in store for us to stimulate the South African economy. President Ramaphosa announced a fiscal stimulus package a few weeks ago that would turn around the South African economy, which recently entered a recession.
And w what we still need is additional details as to what this reallocation of funding will actually entail, where exactly funds will be directed to, to have the biggest impact on job creation as well as economic growth. Do you think consumers will get some form of relief from the statement? That is also on the cards. Consumers have been really under pressure, tax increases, fuel price rises, low employment growth and therefore slow income growth have put South African households under severe financial pressure. So a panel has been investigating whether it is possible to add certain items to the list of zero-rated VAT products. And this panel has suggested products like school uniforms, nappies, sanitary products, white bread, as well as certain parts of chicken be added to the list, which would have a noticeable impact for especially lower income South African households. It is also possible that there might be measures to rein in on fuel price increases going forward. However, this is a difficult one because as importers of oil, South Africa is exposed to changes in oil prices as well as the exchange rate. Now, Maura, what are some of the measures that uh, Finance Minister Didumbuwini could introduce um, to show how government plans to uh, stem escalating debt to help ward off another credit rating downgrade. Absolutely. So both the fiscal stimulus package as well as any measures for consumer relief will have to be anchored in a um, context of fiscal restraint. South Africa's um, government debt-to-GDP ratio and budget deficit have been uh, rising in recent years and credit rating agencies have been downgrading South Africa's credit rating. Moody's is the last of the top three credit rating agencies that has kept South Africa's credit rating in investment grade territory. So it will be important that there will be strategic decisions made focusing on those areas in the economy that would be um, most fruitful in terms of driving economic growth and job creation, while at the same time uh, starting to rein in on expenditure, um, which might be wasteful or um, not yielding significant economic results. Now, let's look at uh, next year's budget. Uh, you know, we, we've seen uh, um, the finance minister having taken over about two weeks ago, plus minus. And uh, yes, it is a team effort in terms of the financial department. But considering 2019 and uh, the first, uh, well, it will be his second budget speech. Um, do you think in terms of looking forward to 2019 in the first quarter, um, Mr. Mboweni would have um, added a different, a, a big difference with regards to um, the country's plans in terms of going forward um, financially and economically, considering the fact that he will have more time. Yes, 
it it seems like the markets are really responding well to his having um, taken up the position of finance minister. The RAND has been on the front foot ahead of this budget. So confidence is already building around him and his ability to um, uh, to take South Africa's uh, fiscal position forward in a way that um, entails both fiscal consolidation, but also a prioritization of spending towards the right areas. And um, the mini-budget is essentially a continuation of a path already laid out in February. So uh, absolutely, next year will be an important moment where he will have another opportunity to really steer South Africa's fiscal uh, position and finances forward. Maura, we look forward to this afternoon's uh, midterm budget speech and uh, hopefully we will get the reprieve as consumers that we're looking for. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That's Maura Federson, an economist with PwC here in South Africa, joining us on the line. Let's go back in time to today in 1964. Northern Rhodesia, now known as Zambia, gained independence from Britain and Kenneth Kawunda, the country's first president, proclaimed one-party rule and independence. The country's independence came 10 months after the collapse of the Federation of Rhodesia and Nyasaland, with Northern Rhodesia becoming the Republic of Zambia. Imagine being an ambulance worker in one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Well, for Amin ambulance volunteers in Mogadishu, this is a daily reality. With no official ambulance service in the city and faced with constant threats from the terrorist group Al-Shabaab, residents depend on this privately funded resource in case of emergencies. But now... Amin is facing troubles of its own as financial difficulties threaten the very existence of the service. The BBC's Ahmed Aden reports from Mogadishu. In Mogadishu, an operator answers an emergency call. He is the only person on shift and this is the only emergency helpline in the capital. He parts the message through to Amin volunteer ambulance workers who are sitting, waiting, ready for their next call out. These volunteers operate a fleet of 16 ambulances in a city that regularly faces attacks from Al Shabaab. The ambulances were bought second-hand from Dubai at a cost of around $5,000 each. But now, the struggle to secure continued private funding has threatened to halt the only free private ambulance service in the city. Dr. Abdulkadir Abdurrahman, founder and manager of Amin Ambulance, told me of the difficulties they face. We'll try to get into 
We are trying to save this service for as long as we can. We go to the people who know us and ask for help with petrol, tires, even one dollar can help. I am a university lecturer. I often ask my students to donate money to help save a life. When I get my salary, before I pay my bills, I always think of Amin Ambulance. I even ask my friends for money. We will continue this work even if we only have one ambulance left. On October 14th last year, Mogadishu was the scene of one of the deadliest terrorist attacks ever to hit the city. A truck bomb exploded killing 587 people and wounding over 300. Many of the injured were ferried to hospitals in private cars without first aid support. Billy Adam Farah was one of the lucky ones collected by Amin Ambulance and later taken to Turkey for treatment. When the metal hit my head, I fall down and vented. I was bleeding when the ambulance arrived. They performed first aid until we reached the hospital. Honestly, they stopped me bleeding to death. But despite the vital service that the ambulance workers provide, there are few signs of official support. According to medics I spoke to, funding and improvements in infrastructure are two of the most immediate challenges that need to be addressed. Dr. Aisha Kablo is a medical doctor in Mogadishu. She outlined the challenges and possible solutions. The roads are very poor, very limited, uh, traffic jams. So when some emergency happens, it is very difficult to, to reach the hospitals. And sometimes we have also checkpoints. The government, they have to organize the ambulance center. That report by the BBC's Ahmed Aden. Our economics update up next with Tabi Sulohoku. Good morning. Zimbabwe has lifted a ban on the import of basic goods and foodstuff. This after shelves were left emptied in recent weeks following panic buying by consumers in the country, which is experiencing a deepening crisis. Interventions by President Emerson Mnangagwa's government to end long-running currency shortages have caused further economic problems. The introduction of a new tax on electronic transactions in an economy desperately short of hard cash prompted shoppers to stockpile goods. A landmark decision by the Ethiopian Investment Board has reversed a major regulation that restricts foreign investors from engaging in parts of Ethiopia's investment incentives and investment areas reserved for domestic investors. Accordingly, rather, accordingly, um, the board which comprises of key ministries and the National Bank of Ethiopia is led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed 
has lifted the restrictions, including the provision of bonded warehouse, consolidation and deconsolidation services, and allow joint venture participation of international logistics service providers. Improving Ethiopia's logistics sector performance has been one of the key areas identified under the Second Growth and Transformation Plan. Zuelin Zimavavi, the General Secretary of South Africa's Trade Union, SAFTU, has warned that if Finance Minister Tito Mbewene does not announce a drastic action, such as cuts in the government's wage bill that will resort to mass protests nationwide. Mbowene faces an uninviable balancing act when he delivers his medium budget term policy statement in Parliament this afternoon. He will seek to reconcile the need to take control of the high public debt with calls for more spending ahead of 2019 polls. Mbowene is South Africa's fifth finance minister in three years. He will announce a tax and spending plans amid unprecedented unemployment, a recession, shrinking tax income and a ballooning debt. Vavi says Labour is ready to take action if Mboweni does not make progressive pronouncements. It's time now to forget yesterday and to build a new platform of unity amongst all of the exploited working class and to confront our reality of a deepening crisis of poverty, unemployment and inequalities which is coupled with corruption in our country which makes things even worse than they will be. Meanwhile, government will have to put emphasis on continued fiscal consolidation while making the provision of funds to kickstart the economy, which is its priority. Amina Akram reports. Treasury is expected to shed more light on the stimulus package announced by President Ramaphosa. Growth has disappointed this year, shattering hopes of impressive revenue collection. This is on the back of continued expenditure pressures, all these factors are likely to make the job of newly appointed Finance Minister Titomboweni difficult. Economists say Treasury will likely revise growth estimates downwards to about 0.5% for this year. Rating agencies will be watching for signs of fiscal slippage should the minister announce higher public sector debt. Amina Akram, SBC News, Johannesburg. The Pan-African Industrial Group, Aeronov, has signed a power generation concession agreement for design, financing, construction, commissioning, operation and maintenance of the Ekekeli Efficient Power Plant, which will be located in the Togolese Lone Port area. The project follows a competitive dialogue launched in January. It includes the participation of German conglomerate. Siemens, which wishes to be actively involved in the electrification efforts of Togo and will provide turbines, technology and maintenance services for the power plant. The construction will be carried out by Spanish group TSK. The U.S. dollar is trading at 10.50 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.60 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar is trading at 3.69 Brazilian roll, at 65.35 Russian ruble, and at 73.38 Indian rupee, 6.94 Chinese yuan, and 14.32 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 77 pence to the British pound, 87 pence, or rather 87 cents to the euro. 
Gold is trading at $1,232, a platinum $833 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $76.80 a barrel. Lulugabu's Africa Rise and Shine. A sports update up next was Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, we're kicking off with football news this hour. An impressive Juventus beat Manchester United 1-0 at Old Trafford in England last night to take command of Champions League Group H with a maximum nine points from three games and demonstrate just how far Jose Mourinho's side are from Europe's elite. United needed their Spanish keeper David De Gea to be in top form as he made a series of good saves, including an excellent effort to keep out a second-half strike from Ronaldo. Manchester United coach Jose Mourinho. We play against uh, one of the biggest, really biggest candidates to win the Champions League. And uh, we did the possible. We could get a different result, especially because of uh, the way we played in the, in the second half. We didn't, especially because Mr. Bonucci, Mr. Chiellini, they could go to, to some Harvard University to give classes about how to be a central defender. Fantastic, absolutely mm-hmm. fantastic. Really difficult, difficult match. United were outlast by a Serie A giants and Mourinho made no effort to sugarcoat that reality. But his comments were a thinly veiled critic of the club's direction. Juventus is champion for seven years, you know. I think seven years in a row. Two Champions League finals in the last four or five years and not happy with what they have. They want more. They want more. They had uh, Higuain, Mandzukic, Dybala. They want more. They want Ronaldo. They had Barzali, Chiellini, Rugani. They are not happy. They want more. They want Bonucci. And they go for the best players in the world. So big, big club with a big pass, but with um, a big desire to have also um, a big future. Rugby New Zealand Mabu will join the Springbok training squad in Stellenbosch as injury cover for Luka M, who is unlikely to be fit for the first two tests of the outgoing tour. M sustained a fractured arm against the All Blacks in Wellington last month, and indications are that he will not be ready for the test against England on the 3rd of November at Twickenham and a week later against France on the 10th of November. As a result, Mapu, kept 14 times for South Africa, was added to the Springbok training squad, currently preparing in Stellenbosch. Meanwhile, the training squad of 20 players are hard at work in Stellenbosch in preparation for the November tour to the United Kingdom and France. By Tuesday afternoon, the group already had four very good field training sessions and two gymnasium workouts under their belt. The players will wrap up preparations on Friday, and the final tour squad will be announced after the 2018 Curry Cup final on Saturday evening. Western Province and Sharks will contest this year's Curry Cup final. Golf news, the Wales top golfers took to the court to try out badminton in Shanghai to launch the WGC HSBC Champions Tournament later on this week. New world number one, Brooks Kupka, Dustin Johnson 
Justin Rose, Rory McElroy, and Francesco Molinari swept drivers for badminton racket to play a Europe versus USA Ryder Cup rematch before the four-day competition kicks off on Thursday. Kupka spoke of his delight at reaching the top slot, while Johnson, who congratulated his compatriot, pointed out that who could retake the number one spot with victory this week? Uh, it feels good. You know, it's something I've been working for all year. Uh, something I've worked hard at, and you know, I'm thankful, thankful to be number one. But you know, you want to stay up top at number one, so you just need to keep doing what I'm doing, keep playing well, and uh, you know, hopefully, grow that lead. That's Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, so Africa.